Well, um, we started off this morning, uh, if you remember, looking at the Old Testament, and we've kind of gone, well, work, it's kind of, it's, it's good, it's a gift, it's positive, it's useful, uh, and yet it's frustrated, it's difficult, it doesn't always end up being what it's supposed to be. And you might be forgiven for thinking that the Old Testament is the way that things are right now, right? Because not just is this kind of the the view of work in our world, and not just is it the view of work in the Old Testament, but it's pretty much the view of work from our own experience, isn't it? You see, on the one hand, we know that work is significant, and life without it is quite miserable. All of the research tells us that long-term unemployment actually results in high incidence of depression, of sickness, a high incidence even of suicide. To not have a job feels awful and uncomfortable in the world in which we live. And yet, at the same time, talk to anybody who's been in their job for a year or two or more, and they will tell you about the boredom and the drudgery and the desire to do something more chat to the young mother who works 16 hours a day and then a couple of hours extra overnight and nobody can tell you when they're going to be before they start and she will tell you about the exhaustion and the tiredness and yet also there's probably not anything else she would rather do at least if she's having an okay day (laughs) so the old testament picture of work is this kind of good frustrated Jesus has come along and yet your and my experience of work still feels like it's good but it's frustrated. So what do we do about that? Has Jesus actually changed the picture at all? And and what sense do we make of that? What can we say about work in the Christian life? And what difference does Jesus make? That's really the question that I want to ask today. Uh, in this second talk and so how about we pray and ask God to help us to think through that question let's pray father God thank you so much uh, that you speak to us uh, not just about the nature of our created world but about uh, the nature of your promises for this world in the coming of Jesus father we ask please that as we look deeply into Jesus life and his work that you would help us to understand our own work more clearly and that we would think faithfully about what it means to work as Christians. And Father, we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, now the first thing I thought I'd get you to do is I've been doing all the work, and it's about time you did something. Um, I want to ask you a question. Chat to the person beside you. What do you think Jesus' work was? Like if you had to answer that question, what was Jesus' work? I'm going to give you a minute with the person beside you. Go for it. All right, that's enough time. You're enjoying that experience far too much. Um, what, what kinds of things came up as options for you as you chatted through that? Being awesome. Being awesome? Yep, absolutely. To bring salvation, to die. A carpenter. 
a winemaker. Yep. So we got we got, got a fishing, fishing. How could we have missed fishing? Um, was he a preacher? Was he a miracle worker? Was he a carpenter? So when he's filling his tax return, and he comes to the kind of little box occupation, what's he supposed to put there? <laughs> Well, what I want to suggest to you is that I think he should put God. I think actually his occupation was to be God. And it's because as you read through the Gospels and you hear Jesus start to talk about his work, he keeps talking about his work as doing the will of his Father. Um, So let me show you a couple of verses in uh, John in particular. John chapter 4, verse 34. My food, said Jesus is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. The Father had a work to do and Jesus was to do that work. John chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus said to them, My Father is always at work, at his work to this very day, and I too am working. And then in John chapter 14 and verse 10, Don't you believe that I am in the Father... And that the Father is in me, the words I say to you are not just my own, rather it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Jesus came to be God, to do the work of God, to do the will of God, to be God at work in the world. And as much as, uh, and this is one of the fascinating things for me, when you start to read kind of Christian understandings of work, you read lots of books that go into great detail about the fact that Jesus was a carpenter and that he's magnified and dignified human work and it's significant and important and all of that. And at one level it's true that God should come to the earth and do human manual labour is a remarkable thing. We're only told once in the entire New Testament that Jesus was a carpenter. Mark chapter 6 verse 3. And has any record been made anywhere of his work? Did he make the most outstanding lampstands that could be made? (laughs) Could he turn wood like nobody else in the history of the world? Did he make tables to die for? You know, the glistening polish and the grain and the... The Bible simply doesn't care. He was a carpenter and he did it, but it's not what God is interested in telling us about his son... What the Bible wants to tell us over and over again is that Jesus came to do God's work and God's work was ultimately to complete his task of dying on the cross and rising again. His work was to take on himself the mistreatment and sin of humanity and the punishment of God upon them and to actually die in our place. His life work was our forgiveness and our hope and our restoration and peace. But it's very interesting that as you read the New Testament, he did that work not just as God, but he also did that work as the ultimate human being. 100% God and 100% man. And so not just was God working in Christ to restore us, but Christ as a man was doing what humanity was always meant to do. You see, we've just read that psalm and we actually sang it at the start of, of today. Psalm, chapter, sorry, psalm 8. That psalm about the nature of humanity as we've been created to be. Do you remember it? If you haven't got your Bibles open, you might want to flip back there in your Bibles for a moment. Psalm 8. 
the psalmist is actually looking back at the creation of the world and he says, I look at how you've made the world, God, and I'm astounded about the nature of human beings. Chapter 8, chapter 8. I don't know why I keep saying that. Psalm 8 and verse 3. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honour. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. All flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. You can remember... Just there in verses 7 and 8, there's that echo that we saw of Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27 about what we've been created to do. And even though it's broken and the psalmist looks on a broken world, he says still somehow humanity has still been made to rule the world. Now, how does humanity rule the world? And the Bible's answer to that question is a little different, I think, to the answer that we want to give Because we've seen work and we've seen the creation, we want to say we rule the world through doing our work, through our manual labour that subdues the creation and gives us food to eat and makes nice things to play with. But when the Bible wants to ask the question, how is humanity ruling the world? It answers the question in a slightly different way. So what I want you to do is flip over with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 5. Because Hebrews 2 picks up this picture of humanity creating the world and tells us how it is in fact taking place. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 5. It is not to angels that he, God, has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honour and put everything under his feet. Now, verse 5 is a slightly odd verse, don't you reckon? So you think creation created everything under his feet. Psalm 8 created everything under his feet. Verse 5 of Hebrews 2 says, It's not to angels that God has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. That is, when the writer of the Hebrews reads Psalm 8, he's not thinking first and foremost this world. He's actually thinking that Psalm 8, which picks up on creation, is telling you something about the future world, the world that is to come. And what is the, what is the, what's going to happen in the world to come? Well, in the world to come, humanity... Son of man, by the way, is a funny phrase, but sometimes it just means being a human being. Why is humanity important and significant to you, God? You've made the whole thing, you're big and you're awesome, but well, human beings you made lower than the angels, but crowned with glory and honour and put everything under their feet. The goal of the world is to have everything under the feet of human beings for us to be the rulers and lords of the new creation. God made the world for that purpose. Sin has destroyed it, but God's purpose is still that humanity would rule. But of course, that's where the logic, where the writer of the Hebrews gives you, helps you to make sense of his logic. Why is Psalm 8 and the original creation story not about this world? Well, because verse 8, in putting everything under humanity, God left nothing that is not subject to him. 
God made it so that we ruled everything. But at present, we do not yet see everything subject to him. God made the world to be under us, but it isn't. And so the writer of the Hebrews says it's actually God put into the creation a promise for humanity about the end of time. God made us to be in charge, but we're not. We try to garden, the plants die. We try to predict the weather and fail, but we can't make it. We try to tame the creation, but the creation tames us. And yet, God has made us to rule the world. So how are we ruling the world? Well, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 8. At present, we do not see everything subject to him, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. We don't see humanity ruling, but we do see Jesus. The Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels, who was made just like us, lived like us and thirsted like us. He knows what it's like to have cracked lips and a dry tongue. And he was tempted like us, and he is hungered like us, and he's loved like us, and he's hated like us, and he's suffered like us. And he has died like us. But in doing all of those things, his purpose was not just to die but indeed to die for the sake of the whole of humanity. And because, do you notice, he suffered death, he has been crowned with glory and honour. He actually came to die in order to fulfil God's plans for the world, and God's purpose was always that he wouldn't stay stuck in the grave, but be raised up as the perfect human being to to rule over all of the heavens and the earth as the promise of everything that God had promised in the Old Testament. But... The wonderful news of the New Testament is when Jesus did it, he did it for you and for me. Jesus, verse 10, is bringing us to glory, to be the people that we were meant to be. He's not ashamed to call us his family. We are his brothers and sisters. And he is our big brother because he chose to take on everything that belongs to us and make it new and make it right. Jesus fulfills God's purpose for humanity. And indeed, even at this moment already, there is a human being ruling the whole of the universe. Now, just so you don't think that I've kind of made this up and just grabbed it out of one part of the Bible, I want to show you another part of the scriptures that talk about this Psalm 8 and the application of Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this is the last place I'm going to get you to flip to. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Quotes from exactly the same psalm. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. If you remember, he's he's arguing the resurrection has taken place. But he says this, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. 
For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For, and here's the quote, he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. And can you see there in that last sentence... Jesus is actually acting as humanity was meant to act. He is subduing the whole creation and it is being placed under his feet. And yet at the end, Jesus as the perfect man will actually hand over to his father in heaven the rule of the whole creation. Jesus is doing what we were made to do and have singularly failed to do. And yet... As Jesus does it, do you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that he's preparing you and I to rule the world. If you read Revelation, and I'd encourage you to do it sometime, you'll keep seeing there's this little phrase, and they reigned with him forever and ever. Um, I'll show it to you right at the end. Revelation 22, verse 3. In that new creation, no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Now go on. I mean, it's a bit hard to believe, right? I mean, look around the room. You're more attractive than the average crowd of people. (laughs) And possibly even slightly more intelligent than the average crowd of people. Do you see world rulers sitting beside you? (laughs) It's It's astounding what the scriptures say. You were meant to rule the world. Everybody wants to rule the world and there's actually a rightness about it. We were made to rule the world. And Jesus is ruling the world and he's actually going to share the rule of the new creation with us. We are going to stand with him in glory and actually be able to do what we were meant to do. The new creation will actually act under our hands and produce wonderful things and there will be no more death nor crying for the old order of things has passed away. In the Lord Jesus Christ, our goal is to become what we were created to be, the lords of the universe. But the lords who understand their place under God the Father, who is the source of all things and to whom everything owes its glory. Now, what does all of that mean for work in the here and now? And the answer, again, that I want to give to you is that it means we need to think about work in a slightly different way from the way that we normally think about it, I think. You see, if Jesus has done the work to bring us to that place, what is our work now? Well, in John chapter 6, there's a very interesting little exchange between Jesus and the crowds. 
The crowds have been searching for Jesus and he's gone to the other side of the sea and they finally find him, verse 25, chapter 6. They found him on the other side of the lake and they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one that he has sent. You see, as those who have failed to rule in the creation and whose goal is to rule in the new creation with Christ, what is the primary work that God would have us do in the right now? What does it mean to do the will of God? And it's not just this passage, but over and over again in the Gospels you'll see the work of God as a human being is to trust Christ, to believe in him. To know that he is your Lord and your Saviour, your King and your Ruler. The one who is the meaning and significance and end point of everything that you do. And to live your whole life under his Lordship. Jesus is your life's goal. He is true human existence. And as we actually treat him as our King, we take God at his word. And we start to be and do what we were meant to be and do back in the garden. But have given up and forfeited because of our sinfulness. You see, it's kind of funny for us, isn't it? We're used to because of our Protestant tradition. And it's great. And I never let go of this doctrine. That we are saved by faith and not works. Okay? But when the reformers spoke about it, they also said we are saved by faith alone, but faith is never alone. And that is because in the grace of God, when you come to trust in Jesus and become a true human being, God begins to give you work to do in terms of the good works that he has prepared in the creation that he has made. Ephesians chapter 2 can say, It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. You see, it's not just your job, your work. The whole of your life has been given to you to glorify God. And when you trust in Christ, he forgives you, transforms you, gives you new hope and God actually prepares a whole bunch of good works for you to do. Everything that you do in the moments of your life from when you wake up in the morning and stumble out of bed and get somebody breakfast to when you toddle off to work and try to do your job well and obey your boss or whatever it is that you're supposed to do when you meet somebody in the bus on the way to work when you, the whole of life has been given to you by God to glorify him and to honour him. And so work, the thing that you get paid to do or the thing that you don't get paid to do but labour away at, actually falls under this umbrella of a life of good works. You do it because God has given you a life to glorify him with. Now I'm going to just talk about the implications of that in a moment but just before I do, I want to say one more thing. And that is... Just stop and think for a moment about what that means about obeying Jesus. It's not tedious or boring or frustrating or difficult or disappointing. 
It's who you were meant to be. There's those wonderful verses in Matthew. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know what a yoke is, don't you? It's that great big lump of timber that they stick over the shoulders of the oxen so that they can tie them to the plough and actually plough the fields. Jesus brings a yoke. We are actually tied to our Lord. But it's not a yoke that's designed to make your life miserable and laborious and terrible and unpleasant. It's actually a yoke that brings you freedom, the freedom to be a real human being. When you are faced, as you get up in the morning, as you go to work, as you work with your workmates, as you come home, as you look after your children, with the struggle between will I sin or will I love God and honour him and do what is right? Every moment that you're faced with that decision, God is actually giving you the privilege of living out the life that Jesus Christ has won for you and that he has made yours by the Holy Spirit. And so, brothers and sisters, when we think about work, we need to think about it in that big perspective. It's one part of a whole life that has been given to you for the glory of Jesus. And I want to say, praise God that you've been given the privilege of being glory and honour to Christ. How good is that? So, let me say five quick things then about working now as Christians in light of all of that. The first is, I want to say, that even though it's going to be frustrating and difficult sometimes, God has still given us work in this world to do, and it's a good thing. Whether that work is paid or unpaid or voluntary or whatever else it is, work is actually a good thing. And the New Testament, in the little snippets that it tells you about how to work as a Christian, tells you that work is a good thing and it's still a gift of God. And so Paul can say to the thief, Ephesians 4, he who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. Work is still good. It provides for you and allows you to be generous to other people. It's a good thing. Furthermore, Paul will also give you the negative of that rule, 2 Thessalonians 3. When we were with you, we gave you this rule, if a man will not work, he shall not eat. It's not difficult. Labour is part of providing for each other and for ourselves. And we are actually to labour diligently. Christians are not to be people who are a burden to others, but actually seek to... Now, can I, can I say in passing, that doesn't mean that you will never accept charity or assistance from other brothers and sisters, or even from the government. But it will mean that if you're in a position where it is necessary for others to provide physical resources for you to eat, your job is still to work out how to labour in a way that is useful and helpful for the people who are around about you. If you are officially unemployed, you actually still have work to do. There is still the serving the people that you live with. And there's taking the effort and putting the resume together. It is dreadfully soul-destroying, I know, for people who are in that position of having to look for work long-term. I want to encourage you under Jesus, though, to see it as an opportunity to keep serving and loving and doing the work that God has given you to do. 
We are all to actually work for the good of others, for them being uh, given stuff to eat and for us. But of course, the Bible actually goes beyond that, and, and it says even more remarkable things. And it's just a reminder of what we've already seen, really. Colossians chapter 3, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Or a little later on in the same chapter, verse 23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not men. When you're at work, whatever your work is to do, you're not doing it in order to impress people. You're not doing it in order to make them think better of you, to give you a promotion, to... You're actually doing it because as you do it diligently, faithfully, well, you actually bring glory and honour to God. And here is a remarkable thing that the scriptures say. On that last day, the good works of God's people will be on display for all and God will be glorified because of the work of his spirit in your heart and life. Even if nobody else is watching what you do today, if your children are so small that they will never actually even understand what it is that you've done for them today, or maybe in 30 years' time when they have some kids of their own. It's okay, God sees. You're in a job that's miserable and you do it faithfully and well and God sees. And incredibly, nobody will see now and on the last day, displayed before all of creation, will be the fact that you faithfully served Jesus and honoured him in your work, even though nobody could see it at the time. God is kind to us, isn't he? Very kind. Further, Paul tells to us, as we work, do you realise we actually, and I love this phrase, we adorn the gospel. Uh, Titus chapter 2 and verses 9 and 10. See, slaves were the lowest of the low. They got to do work that nobody else wanted to do and there was nobody particularly paying them for it, treating them well for it, kindness for it. But Paul says to the slaves, chapter 2, verse 9 of Titus, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our saviour attractive. The old King James translation is to adorn the gospel. It's like what you do, you know, with the Christmas tree, you get the bare Christmas tree and it's kind of bare and it's green and it's treeish, and then you kind of put all this stuff around it and, and it looks beautiful is there anything that could be more beautiful than the gospel and the answer is no and yet somehow in God's mercy and grace he chooses to take the way that you and I work and perform our lives and live for him and actually uses that to make the gospel appear even more attractive to the people around about us and so as we work for Christ even though sometimes we won't see the fruit of what we do, it actually serves to make the gospel attractive as you are different in your work, as you work to please Jesus, as you speak the truth, as you do what is right, as you serve people, God will take that and in some people's lives will turn them from rebellion to life because they will find Jesus as their Lord. And so, as Peter puts it, 1 Peter 2.11 Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world, abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Work is a great gift from God. Do it well. Do it faithfully. Do it serving Jesusly. If I can invent a new word. And do it because it's going to be honouring to God. 
Jesus has transformed our life. Now that doesn't mean that every day is going to be perfectly happy and cheerful. You know? Changing nappies is not an exciting job. If you've got a massive project that you've got due and you know the deadline's coming and you've got things that you're avoiding because you really hate those tasks but they need to get done, Jesus isn't going to make them exciting tasks. He's not going to turn them around. He's not going to make them really wonderful. In and of themselves, they'll still be boring tasks to do. What he is saying is as you go about those tasks in a way that's Christian rather than not Christian, you're actually being caught up in his plans and purposes for the world and being put in a position to bring him glory and honour. It won't completely take the frustration away, but it will transform the way that we view what we do. Of course, as we said in the first talk, there is one danger that all of this brings, and that is the danger of... um, great, my work is the place that I serve God, it just slips very quickly to work is my service of God. And work has this temptation to kind of blow up and consume all the rest of my life. So the one thing that I want to say as we finish and kind of reflect on how good God has been in allowing us even in our mundane work to contribute to his glory and honour, I want to remind you, don't let the good get in the road of the best. Now, I don't know whether you like Yes Minister. I don't even know whether all of you have seen Yes Minister. It was a television show that was on television quite a long while ago now. But you don't have to have seen it in order to get this illustration. This was my favourite episode of Yes Minister ever. So there's a guy, right, who basically kind of accidentally becomes a member of Parliament. And uh, he has this kind of bureaucracy around him. And he spends his whole time trying to get stuff done. And they spend their whole time trying to stop him from doing anything. Is effectively how it works. But there's this great episode that centres around a hospital called St Edward's Hospital in North London. And St Edward's Hospital in North London is the most efficient hospital in the whole of London. And it's actually up in running for an award as well for the most hygienic hospital in its area. And the hospital happens to be in the area where this local member of parliament works, so he goes along to visit the hospital in order to kind of say... And this hospital is amazingly run. There are 342 ancillary staff. There are, uh, sorry, 342 administrative staff. There are 170 ancillary staff. And he wanders around. And as he wanders around the hospital, he starts to ask the question, I haven't seen any doctors yet. He stops for a bit longer and thinks about it. He says, I haven't seen any patients either. Uh, And there's one of the bureaucrats there, a man, (laughs) it's beautifully English, Sir Ian Whitchurch, who says, first of all, you have to sort out the smooth running of the hospital. Having patients around would be no help at all. (laughs) And of course it's true, isn't it? Hospitals would be so much cleaner and nice and healthier if there weren't sick people there. But there's a point at which you've lost the purpose for running the hospital if you've forgotten that you're actually there in order to help sick people. If you don't have any patients, it doesn't matter how good it is, you've missed the point. And that, I think, uh, is the healthy warning for us when it comes to thinking well about our work. Do not think of your work as something that I have to endure in order to serve God or in order to do ministry in other places or etc., etc. It is all part of my life of obedience. But anything within our life of obedience is able to be, as we saw in the first talk, made into an idol and the good suddenly becomes the best that I seek after with my whole heart.
And the way that we protect ourselves from that is actually by stopping and each day asking God to help us to work out our work as obedient servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, as an obedient servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, what else do I have to do today apart from work? That is a massive question, and we're going to try and wrestle that question out in a bit more detail in the third talk. And uh, part of the answer is there is no answer. But we'll, we'll get there. But I do want to say, or at least I want to suggest to you, a possibility that I'm just going to let sit there and be uncomfortable for the rest of the weekend until we get to tomorrow morning. If Jesus is the Lord of the whole world, and the place that the whole world is heading to is the judgment day and giving an answer before Christ at the end of time, I want to suggest to you that there is one job that is more important than all other jobs. And that is the job of preaching the gospel. I've said that intentionally rudely and provocatively. I want you to talk about that between now and tomorrow morning. I want you to chat about with it. Is that really true? Hold on, what, what, does that make sense of everything? How does that fit in? Does that mean that Jeff is the only person with a real job? And, yeah, sorry, sorry. I, thank you for doing the local translation. Uh, um, is preaching the gospel the most important job? What does that mean about actual jobs? And is that related to just being the minister in the church? They're the questions that I want to put on the table as we come to think tomorrow. But I'm going to leave that sitting there for you to chew on for the next day. Let's stop and actually give thanks to God that Jesus has done the work of humanity and brought us the promise of heaven. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise that Jesus should come into our world. Lord, when we look at our own hearts and minds and lives, in true perspective, we realise that we are hopelessly weak, that we have done and said and thought things that we ought not to have done or said or thought. Father, that our lives flip and flop between trying to honour you and trying to make our own selfish way in this world. And Father, we know that our sin detracts from your glory. And so, Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he would choose to become like one of us, that he would choose to take up our weakness and infirmity, our sickness and disease, and, Father, even death itself, that he might go to the cross in our place to take on himself all that we have done to mess up your world. And Father, to make it right, not just for himself, but for us too. Lord, thanks that Jesus is coming back, that he's been raised to life, that he's the king now, and that his kingship will be revealed in all of its blazing glory on that last day. And Father, thank you that because of that, we live now as people who are able to glorify you, even if the acknowledgement won't come till then. Lord, help us to work as people who love Jesus. Help us to work in a way that honours you. 
And Father, please, we pray, be kind enough to use our work to bring you praise. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.